chapter 1. The book of Exodus begins about 400 years after the book of Genesis ends. So it puts us right about 1600 B.C. We left off with Joseph, that the son of Jacob, one of the 12 sons of Jacob, and his brothers there in Egypt under favorable circumstances. They came through their famine. Their father Jacob died, who was also Israel. And Jacob's father was, of course, Isaac, the son of promise, who was the son of Abraham and Sarah. They're the heroes of the faith in the Old Testament, and they believed in the Lord, and they trusted in the Lord, and they looked for the city which had foundation, whose builder and maker is God. We called them the patriarchs, for it all began with them. And as God set Abraham aside, he made promises to him when him and his wife couldn't have children, that from them and her offspring would come a nation, and nations, and kings. And of course, the prophecy ultimately is for Jesus Christ, the King of kings, the King of the Jews, to come through their offspring. And thus, the miracle of the son of promise, Isaac, Then Isaac had the two children, Esau and Jacob, but the promise goes through Jacob. God changes Jacob's name to Israel. Israel has 12 sons through the four different wives, and those 12 sons become known as the 12 tribes of Israel. And when we left off in Genesis, Jacob spoke a prophetic word over each of those 12 sons back in Genesis 49, two weeks ago here in the sanctuary. And there as 70 people over four centuries, that's a long time. Think how much, how long it is. It's past the colonial era for the United States. That's like Jamestown. Like, that's Plymouth Rock. That's a long time ago. So 400 years is a long time. And over 400 years, these people who maintained their ethnic identity and distinction from the Egyptians became a great nation, even as God had promised to Abraham back in the book of Genesis. So from one son, the son of promise, Isaac, now comes an entire nation with the genealogies, over uh, probably 2 million people at least. But they are, they've gone from having favor centuries before to disfavor, and as people like to conquer other people, They are subservient to the Egyptian people. They're basically slaves. They're low-end labor. They have less opportunities, things that we can all relate to and I don't need to go into. And so it's into that background, 400 years after Joseph stepped into eternity, the son of Jacob, and he said, when you go to the promised land, for God will surely keep his promises and visit you, take my bones with you. Do not bury me in Egypt, but bury me in the promised land. For he looked for the city which had foundation, whose builder and maker is God. And it is in that background that we come to the book of Exodus. Now, these are the names of the children of Israel, Exodus chapter 1, verse 1, who came to Egypt, each man in his household came with Jacob, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. There are four sons of Leah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, God, and Asher. All those who were descendants of Jacob were 70 persons, for Joseph was born in Egypt already. And Joseph died all of his brothers, and all that generation. But the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly, multiplied, and grew exceedingly mightily, and the land was filled with them. They actually were changing the ethnic identity of the land. Countries go through different ethnic transformations in many cases. Rome, of course, was transformed with ethnic diversity as they conquered the different regions in what is now modern Europe, and those people integrated with their Roman Italian culture. They they took on uh, different identities, and we know that every 10 years of the U.S. Census, we get different demographics and different voting blocks based upon ethnic tendencies and stuff like that, and there's nothing new under the sun. So the Israelites became very strong, and the people, the Egyptians were afraid of them, but They were growing in strength, and through the course of time, they multiplied and became a nation within a nation, an ethnic nation set aside by God and promised by God to be a nation, descendants of Abraham, in this nation of Egypt, which was not part of the promise. And the earth is the Lord's and everything there in it. So 
Whatever the Lord wants to give to the people of Israel, that's his business because he owns the universe and Christ is holding it together. And he made these promises to these people through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and now all these descendants. But I would point out to you in these first few verses that it says that Joseph died with his brothers and all their generation. That's verse six. And just a reminder yet again, as we studied here just a few nights ago, finishing Genesis 50, we all die and we all have our generations. And this is our generation. Now, we're at different junctures in our generation. I'm a baby boomer. I'm going to be 59 in two days. And I was born in 61 when Kennedy was president. And you were born in a certain year when so-and-so was president, if you're born in America or wherever you were born. And we have a timeline. And we're sharing the planet. And my father is 89, and he's in assisted living on lockdown right now. Praise the Lord, he got his TV hooked up today. They let Spectrum in there. Of course, they would have sanitized him profoundly and powerfully to do it. But Dad's generation is a different generation. He grew up hearing about World, World War II. Well, he grew up hearing about Pearl Harbor on the radio. He remembers it distinctively as a kid. He was born in uh, 1930. So he remembers that, and that was his world. The Depression as a little kid, and then Dad gone in World War II, and then post-World War II, Dad coming back, and then my dad went into military service and served our country in Korea and Vietnam. And we just all have gener- different generations. But that's his generation. And then I'm kind of the next generation, and then there's the Gen Xers like Hector and these guys, you know, the, 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 you know Jeremy Camp is a Gen Xer. If everyone's a Gen Xer, it's Jeremy Camp, right? That's a Gen Xer. And then my wife technically is a Gen Xer as well. She's younger than me. And then we have the millennials, which are like my daughter, Hannah, who's going to be 30 in April. And, you know, there's, there's the millennials, you know, they're kind of running everything right now. And or if they're not, they're going to be. It's their planet. You're going to inherit the planet. So if you're a millennial, just know this. If the Lord tarries and we come through all this and it's a brave new world, you're going to be running the planet. So may you seek the Lord and run it with godly wisdom and a spirit-filled perspective in your decisions. And then there's Generation Z, which is like that next generation, like the toddlers at Calvary School where my wife was working and still is, but online and at home like every other teacher in America right now, producing programs for two-year-olds, the director of toddlers. And my grandkids' age, my grandkids are three and one and one, and we've got another one on the way. And Generation Z reminds us there's future generations until the Lord sounds his trumpet. So it's not the end of the world today, though certainly it's a precarious time. But every generation comes and goes. And so we see right here that Joseph died, all of his brothers and all that generation. Don't be in a hurry to grow up and don't be in a hurry for the future. I would encourage you to stay in the moment and fulfill what God has for you in the moment. We have today. We can't change yesterday. We have today. And when we step into eternity, if we step into eternity young, like Melissa Henningkamp, Jeremy Kent's first wife, of course, the movie's out now, I still believe. And isn't it crazy the movie was released right when all this happened? It did number one in the box office last week when people were still going to the movie. Praise the Lord for that. What a wonderful story. But Melissa Henningkamp went to be at the Lord in her almost 20 years ago when she was 21. But her generation's rolling on right now, and they're in their 40s. And that's how it works. So just a reminder... Right now, we're all sharing this event, this pandemic, coronavirus. We're sharing this on the entire planet, multiple generations. We're sharing it in our nations within these generations, in our borders, in our regions within this generation. And we all have our time. And what's important is whether we're older in life, and like my dad says, it all seems, it's like a dream to him right now. It doesn't seem real. But I think that's, I speak for all of us. Like, I'm pretty cognizant of my environment. It doesn't seem real. And if we come through this and I live a full life, like Psalm 90 says, I'm going to live another 
20 years. 2041 has always been my count, my count back. Like I count back because that's when I'm 80, so I get another 20 years. And then those of you like Jeremy Camp in early 40s and like my daughter Hannah, a millennial 30s, not quite 30, late 20s. And then my grandkids looking at Zippy and Velzy and we'll all have our chance, you know. And if the Lord tarries, Zippy and Velzy give them 80 years, that puts them in another, another century, doesn't it? Focus on what God has for you, with you, in and through you, in your generation, on this day, for your role, and seek to fulfill it. That's what we want to do on this day. Because sooner or later, Zippy, if you give her 80 years, my granddaughter, she'll be 83, it will be another century, but she too will look as old as my father looks at Sunrise Assisted Living in Huntington Beach today. Solomon said that we should seek the Lord in our youth before the days grow old and evil and we take no pleasure in him. And so whoever we are in what generational timeline, just know this, there is an end. There's an end. David, King David said, I go the way of all men. So fulfill who you are in your generation for such a time as this, like Esther. That's the word there. Now we read on in verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, look, the people of the children of Israel are, are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And it happens in the event of war that they also join our enemies and fight against us. And so go up out of the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens. And they built for Pharaoh supply cities, Pithom and Ramsey. You know, fear is so crippling. And one of the things about fear is you do tend to think the worst case scenario, like Pharaoh here. He sees a lot of people, and he sees them as a threat to his way of life, his power, his dreams. And so he immediately thinks the worst in it, which is kind of tough because we are sinful, and humanity does evil things, and human history would show that. In ministry, we've learned that as a pastor, and we hope for the best, we prepare for the worst. So if someone you know, is a little choppy in a relationship, you're hoping for the best, what it looks like with a spirit-filled ending, but there might be a bad ending. Like you get stalkers that come to church. You get rapists that come to church. You get violent people that kill people that come to church. You don't think that. There's people that show up at churches and shoot people. We've seen that, right? I mean, we've seen it in our timeline. So here is a senior pastor at Worship Generation for 15 years, along with the board of elders and the other pastors. I would say this quite often. We hope for the best because love hopes all things, believes all things, and love never fails. But as shepherds tending the flock, we at times have to be prepared for the worst case scenario. Like we have to think it through what is the worst case scenario so we can anticipate how that affects the body of Christ and the people we love and we're called to tend and share. So I think it's quite safe to say there's a a number of godly men and women all over the world right now who love Jesus and in a very difficult scenario are thinking about how they can make the best of it, hoping for the best to serve. That's what faith does. So faith isn't the absence of thinking what a worst-case scenario is because the Proverbs tell us the prudent foresee evil and take refuge, but the foolish pass on and are punished. In Proverbs, it says that uh, a wise man knows the state of his flocks, like inventory. When God told Moses to build the tabernacle, he told him how many widgets, gidgets, the color, the size, the length, and such, and so forth. So God is in the details. So there's nothing wrong with thinking about, like, how can I be prepared for something in an extreme situation? That's not a lack of faith. That's prudence. But we never should lose face in the fact and the truth that our hope in Jesus Christ is an anchor to the soul, as Hebrews says. And so even if we might think of worst-case scenarios, we always have faith, hope, and love. Like, God's on the throne. So 
it, you know, it's like Esther going in before the king. If I live, I live. If I die, I die. But either way, I'm going in and I'm going to present myself to the king and have everyone pray for me. If I live, I live. If I die, I die. It's like Meshach, Shechem, and Abednego saying, hey, you can throw us in the fire. Our God's able to deliver us. But if he doesn't, we're still not going to bow down to you. So that's hoping and believing the best case scenario. But it's also realizing, you know what? If we get burnt in the fire, it is what it is. But you're not going to change who we are in our faith and character in Jesus Christ. That's a godly example. But see, Pharaoh here is moved by fear of the unknown, and it's not a godly fear. It's a fear that you get when you fight God. He's fighting God. He's not walking with the promise. He is God in Egypt. And maybe someone's watching this, and you think you're God. You just realize in the last week you are not God. In fact, we're probably going to find out that government on earth is baby God, little g God. God is God. And Isaiah says there is no God except our God who is a rock. And Jesus Christ said before Abraham, I am. And thus the religious leaders picked up stones to stone him because he claimed to be God, God of the burning bush, who we'll get to in another study, probably in a week or so, Lord willing. Pharaoh's life revolved around Pharaoh. He was a taker. And he, people were consumers, and he took from them. And his fear was losing what he could consume and control. And maybe today, as you watch this broadcast, as you see everything, global recession coming without a doubt. No matter what we come through this, it's going to never look the same for years. And maybe you're afraid of like, oh, I can't control this, and I can't control these people, and I can't control this money. I mean, we've watched the stock market go from high 20s to below 20,000. A third of global wealth in the stock market just went away to what we used to call money heaven. And maybe you've lost a lot of wealth. But Jesus taught us to look to him for our daily bread. So if your losses bring you to a place of brokenness and dependency upon Christ, those are not bad losses. In fact, those are gains. Because Jesus taught in the parable of the sowers, the weed, the things that grow that choke out and distract, and it's the cares of this life. And I think right about now, once we kind of get past, do we have enough food to stay in for weeks or months or whatever? It changes every day, the extension of what we're supposed to expect. It really comes back to faith and trusting in the Lord. The opposite of Pharaoh here. Pharaoh is moved by fear. And he says, well, what if, what if we need to deal shrewdly? Because what if, what if they do this and they, they team up with our enemies? See, he's thinking worst case scenario because it's all about him. The foolish man builds his house upon the sand. His empire, it's all about him. But the wise woman, the wise man build their house upon the rock, Jesus Christ and his promises. Don't be Pharaoh. Don't be moved by fear because it's all about you. Be moved by faith because it's all about Jesus Christ. Because Paul the Apostle said, I know who I believed in, and I'm persuaded he's able to keep that, which I've committed to him until that day. That's the kind of faith we have. We're prudent. We're not ignorant of evil. But we're not moved from our firm foundation in faith in Jesus Christ from that evil. Poor Pharaoh. His story just gets worse as we go forward. Don't let your story get worse as we go forward. Whenever you watch this study, don't let your story get worse as you go forward. Let your story get better when you're done listening to Exodus chapter 1 and 2 with Joey Baran on this broadcast. Because Pharaoh's story got worse. Apart from Pharaoh, Judas is the only other guy that's like that bad in the Bible. It's like, what happened? It's, it's crazy. Poor Pharaoh. Don't be moved by fear of this and what if. And, uh, it's, you know what? Just, that's not us. Don't put yourself in the camp of Pharaoh. Verse 12. But the more they afflicted them, the Israelites, the more they multiplied and grew. And they were in dread of the children of Israel, so the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor. And they made their lives bitter with hard bondage and mortar and brick and in all manner of service in the field. All their service in which they made them serve was with rigor. 
Well, in verse 12, it says that they, the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. Now, we know there's a biblical principle that through many tribulations, we must inherit the kingdom of God. God is not looking for soft things. He wants us to be people of fiber and character. He's preparing us for eternity. Everything in time, space, and matter is prepared for eternity. And it's a refining work. If you're going to be a Navy SEAL, you're going through more than the average person that joins the Navy or pararescue of the Air Force or Green Berets. You know, like you're going deeper, stronger. You know, like you're going to a higher commitment. There's more expected of you. There's just more expected of you. Many of you know for a couple of years I ran the U.S. surf team and I was trained with the USOC, and, I, and I, I, it was a great privilege and a great opportunity, and I'm very thankful for what the Lord allowed me to do. I've been to the Olympic headquarters, and I work with elite head coaches at the highest level, and I learned a lot from them, and I had a lot of respect for them. In fact, my heart is very heart heavy for people like that that I love and care about, even this day. But we studied how to be elite, and we studied what makes you great. And Olympic committees from all over the world would send their people to Colorado Springs to train with the USOC for weeks, months at a time uh, in general, and then in their specific sport, their discipline, to be elite and great, to go from being um, really good at something to being great and being able to represent your country and be at the highest level, an Olympian, to march through the opening parade, an Olympian for your country. And then to possibly get on the podium. It's incredible. And what we studied and worked on was all little details that make the difference. And it requires requires sacrifice, commitment, and a total all-in. And so much discipline and sacrifice to be an Olympian and to be a gold medal Olympian. Even yesterday at the beach, I had an interesting situation where I overheard a father talking to his son. Of course, everyone was still out there yesterday, and there's no school, and people are just trying to figure out, what are we doing? And he was beach volleyball there in Huntington Beach, and he was getting a little bit frustrated with his son, which parents can do, dads with sons. I get it. And uh, I can't say it wasn't me ever with Luke and Tim, so I get it. But he said, we should just go home. You know, if you're going to be soft, we should just go home. And he said something to the nature like, you'll never be able to say that you gave more than anyone else to be great. Which really resonated with me because looking back on my surf career, I had purposed early on that no one would ever do more to be better at pipeline than me in my timeline. I made more sacrifices between 1978 and 1984 than anyone else at the Bonsai Pipeline. I went out in 30-foot surf, 40-foot surf, clean, ugly, usually ugly and stormy when no one else would go out, and I surfed giant pipeline by myself dozens and dozens of times. Second reef. I was going to make sure that no one out-hustled me for pipeline, and that's how I made three finals and became a pipe master's champion and found greatness in my sport. Well, it's the sacrifice and total commitment, all in, that brings greatness. And that involves affliction 
and tribulations. That involves wipeouts. That involves getting last place in the Pipe Masters two years before you win it with horrible wipeouts. That involves not being able to surf in the Pipe Masters a year before you win it because of a boycott. Politically, it had nothing to do with you, but you can't surf in it because you're in the top 16 in the world. It involves all kinds of things. It's the process of being on the potter's wheel where it's going around and around. The Lord just, you, it looks like you got it there and you look like you're this, and then the Lord just comes in and beats it down and molds you out and rebuilds you up. That's afflictions. That's tribulation. And here in Exodus, in under this affliction, of being slaves and under hard labor, God is beating them down on the potter's wheel as a nation, as a people, to give them depth of character and dependency upon him. He's calling them to greater sacrifice through these afflictions and trials, and they're learning discipline. They're, they're learning refinement. They're in the fire and being refined. Job said of his trials and afflictions that when he comes through the fire of all that he lost, his family, his kids, his wealth, all in one day, he said, when I come through this, I'll be as refined gold from the fire. And that's what God does. He uses afflictions and trials and tribulations to refine us and give us character and make us great in the things of the kingdom that we can be great and useful for all eternity. That's what he does. That's what he did with these people. There are a lot of nations on the planet this time. The historical nations of Asia, the historical nations of uh, Latin America, and they were there. But it was only this people and it was only this nation that was set apart to be in a covenant relationship with God. To whom much is given, much is required. And he's making them his covenant people. In Jesus Christ, the new covenant, we are saved by grace, but we are refined by the spirit to be his people. We have all the promises as adopted children of the king, but whom the Lord loves, he chastens. So if you wonder why I'm going through afflictions more than someone else, it might be because you're the son or the daughter. But we do know Jesus said, in essence, it rains on the just and the unjust. So some trials and afflictions like World War II or World War I, they affect everybody. But for the believer, all things work together for good to those who love Christ and are called according to his purpose. So in this affliction as a people of covenant, this refinement's for good. It's for their own best interest. They're going to be the better for it. And what does it say? They grew. So as we go through afflictions and trials, and as we are all the more afflicted and maybe make sacrifices we never thought we could make in our life before March 19th, may we grow in character, but more importantly, in faith. Faith in Jesus and character of Jesus. Now we read on verse 15. Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, of whom the name of one was Shephirah, and the name of the other, Pua. And he said, when you do the duties of a midwife for the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stools... If it is a son, then you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the male children alive. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing? And saved the male children alive. And the midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are lively and give birth before the midwives come to them. Therefore God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very mightily. And so it was, because the midwives feared God, that he provided households for them. So Pharaoh commanded all of his people saying, every son who is born, you shall cast into the river and every daughter you shall save alive. There is no shortage in human history of ruthless dictators that murder an innocent people. In my own timeline and part of my timeline, again, the last 120 years of Europe and other places from Hitler to Stalin, Pol Pot and the Khmer Rouge, in Cambodia in the 70s, 
even dictators on our planet now who oppress and afflict their people or other people in their, in, in their country. The brutality of humanity can be so incredible. And we might be coming into a timeline where we might see more brutality out of desperation. Europe became very desperate and brutal as it began to fold under the Third Reich. We know that. But people like Corey Tim Boom and others, they were strong believers. And they maintained their faith and their integrity. And like Paul said to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, nor do I count my life dear to me that I can complete that which is entrusted to me that God's called me to do, my ministry. And they risked a lot in very difficult times to save other people. This is what these midwives did. If you look at the power of people, it can intimidate us. But if you look at the power of God, that should awe us. Man's power might intimidate us, but the power of God should awe us. Our God is an awesome God. That song from the 80s. Our God is an awesome God. In fact, the lyrics go into talking about Egypt and the deliverance of God's people from Egypt. Our God is an awesome God. And that's what should awe us. So when Pharaoh says, hey, you kill those innocent babies, you just, our God is an awesome God. Now, whether they're telling the truth or not, I don't know. Who knows what you do in a desperate situation? If you had Jews in your home in 1941 and the Nazis came, SS came to your door, I mean, who knows? God looks at the heart. When Rahab lied about the Israelite spies, she's lying. And yet she's in Hebrews Hall of Faith, chapter 11, because she took that risk for the saving of other people. God looks at the heart. And I'm not saying lying. I'm just saying God looks at the heart. He looks at the motives, not the actions. The actions count, but motives are what really count. Because if we love God and love people, our actions are going to reflect that. And we'll take risks to the benefit of other people. We're givers, not takers. These women were givers. They were willing to give their lives to save these innocent children at this time. Our God is an awesome God. They're courageous. They're courageous women of faith. And they took risk in their courage. Courage isn't the absence of fear. It's the ability to do what's right in the midst of fear. To know that God will never leave us nor forsake us through faith in Jesus Christ. That he's all authorities that belongs to him. We need to be courageous. God said to Joshua, be bold and strong, be courageous, and do not fear for I'll be with you in every way you go. But meditate on my word and don't depart to the left and don't depart to the right and you'll be prosperous. These women were prosperous because they feared God, not Pharaoh, and they did the right thing. As Martin Luther King Jr. said, it's always the right time to do the right thing, and they did the right thing, morally, ethically, biblically, spiritually. And it says God dealt well with them, and God blessed them, and because they feared God, our God is an awesome God, not Pharaoh, he provided households for them. But even if he didn't, even if they feared God like believers in the Middle East the last 10 years, how many have been martyred by ISIS and these other terrorist groups? i still rather bow the knee and have my head decapitated on a beach in Lebanon with my faith in Jesus Christ intact than to renounce my faith and capitulate my convictions because of the fear of evil men. And you should come to the same conviction as well. It's a good place to be. So if God blesses you because you fear him and you have prosperity in your human experience, good for you, praise the Lord. And if it costs you your life, good for you. Praise the Lord. We're all going to die. And of all the ways you can go, what could be better than being faithful to the Lord and laying down your life for the Lord? 
Now we read on to chapter 2. And a man in the house of Levi went to take a wife. Remember, Levi is one of the 12 sons of Jacob, Israel. A man of the house of Levi went and took a wife, a daughter of Levi, so the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a beautiful child, she hid him three months. But when she could no longer hide him, she took an ark of bulrush for him, dabbed it with asphalt and pitch, put the child in it, laid it in the reeds by the river's bank. And his sister stood afar off to know what would be done to him. Then the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, and her maidens walked along the riverside. And when she saw the ark among the reeds, she sent her maid to get it. And when she opened it, she saw the child. And behold, the, the baby wept. And there's nothing like a crying baby, by the way. Just the reality of the human experience. We're so helpless, really. No matter how strong we get, we're still a crying baby. We're helpless at the beginning of the journey. We're helpless at the end of the journey. So she had compassion on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women that she may nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the maiden went and called the child's mother. That would be Yochebed. Uh, Moses' mom, we know that, and Amram was, uh, was the father. Uh, so they, this child, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him, and the child grew, and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and she became his, her son. And so she called his name Moses, saying, because I drew him out of the water. So this is the introduction to us of Moses in the Bible. Moses, of course, is an amazing historical person, Certainly on the list of influential people, Moses at the very top for modern-day Judaism looks to Moses as their big leader, if you will. I mean, Abraham, Moses, like, he's up there, you know, as far as the all-time human history, men that have influenced human history. Of course, he's a lawgiver. God's going to give him the Ten Commandments and the elements, other elements of God's law. And so Moses is known as the lawgiver, and that's Moses. So this is his beginning. He was born under these ba- this background where children were being put to death, male children who were Hebrews. But through his mom's faith, now his parents are in Hebrews 11 for their faith, not by name, just as his parents. And by faith, they didn't fear the king's decree. So again, here's people that didn't fear the king's decree and, or fear the environment and the circumstances. And they didn't fear. They were faithful to the Lord. They just said, you know what? We're going to trust God with our son and we're going to put him in the, the Nile River which was a god to the Egyptians, but they believed their god was bigger than the god of the river, the Nile River in, in Egypt. And they put him in the river, and they committed him to the Lord. And you know, sometimes that's just all we can do with our children when they grow up and they go away to college, they get married, whatever, different things. They're, they got cancer. They make bad decisions. They're in jail, incarcerated. They lose their home. They lose their spouse. Just different things. Like That's contextually with like your children but the sooner you learn to put your children in a basket in the river and say, into your hands I commit them, Lord Jesus, the better off you're going to be. Because children are heritage from the Lord, and the fruit of the room is his reward. And children belong to him. And every child that's ever been has a potential calling from the Lord upon their life. And as parents, we're called to raise them to live by faith, not to be soft, but to have fiber and character and faith, and to know that God is with us in the difficult time. And right now, a lot of parents are having a hard time with faith in Jesus Christ, how to help their children navigate these things that are going on right now. I mean, these kids, you know, we're being told, first we're told we might not have school till like the first week of April, and now we're being told we might not have school till September in California, and now we're being, like, we're told we don't even know when there might be school again. This generation of children right now, pre-K, kindergarten, elementary years, middle school. How would you like to be a middle schooler right now in America? If you're older, remember when you were in middle school? Valley Junior High, 75, 76, Joey Brand. I can't even imagine being at Valley Junior High with David Barr and Tony Mata and all my friends and Something like this going on. 
I can't even wrap my mind around it. I'm 59 in two days. I've been on this planet almost 60 years, and I've been walking with Jesus for 33, and I can barely understand, and I know the Bible, and I know the prophecies, and I know the end game, and I can barely wrap my mind around what's happening right now. How would you like to be a middle schooler with Jesus or without Jesus right now? It's crazy. So we need to be praying for all these kids, and we need to give our kids to the Lord. We need to give these things to the Lord. We need to train up a child in the way they should go, and we need to buffet them and protect them as much as we can in these difficult times. But if they can't go outside, they can't go outside. And if you have to wear a mask and you wear a mask, then that's what they need to do. That's the thing about grandchildren, because I've got the grandchildren. It gives you a vision of a future for coming generations. And you can't just be old and salty and move to Barstow or somewhere like that in the desert and just hide out. Grandchildren, your heart expands like it does for your own children, but it expands even more. So just a preview of being a grandparent. And if you're not one, I hope someday you might be one to get to know the joy of grandparenting. But these children, this is our timeline, and we have to give them to the Lord. Like Moses in the basket and now a river, we're in a situation that's out of our control, like Pharaoh's threats against the people. This is so out of our control. And the wisest thing we can do on March 19th and when this broadcast on my birthday, the 21st, and then again on the 24th, uh, the next study that comes from the same passage in the topical, we need to give our children to the Lord. Like we got to, sooner or later as a parent, you got to put your children in that basket with faith in Jesus Christ and say, Lord, into their, your hands I commit my children. I remember coming back from Cal Maritime years ago, five, six years ago, seven years ago, when we dropped off Timmy for his freshman year at Cal Maritime. And the whole way home, Jennifer, I hardly said anything on the five. Button Willow, all that stretch there, Bakersfield. It's like, wow, man, he's on his own. Lord Jesus, be with our son. When Hannah got on the plane and moved to Florida to marry Nate and be a pastor's wife. I love Nate. But it was so hard when Hannah moved. It was so hard. She was always my big girl. You know, we lost our son. And then we had Hannah. Hannah Joy Baran. She grew up with Colby videos and Salty the Singing Songbook, Cedar Mount Praise VHS videos. She grew up in the 90s. She's daddy's girl. I was hard on her. I spoiled Leah, but I was hard on Hannah. But Hannah was always a prophetess and always called to do great things with the Lord. And Nate's an incredible evangelist. But when my baby girl got on that plane at LAX and moved to Florida, that was one of the hardest days of my life. And I had to put her in that basket of the Nile River of the world and say, Lord Jesus, into your hands I commit my daughter. And trust the Lord for what he's going to do, even to this day with my daughter, because I can't be with my daughter in these turbulent times. I can't be with my son Luke. He's in Colorado. I can call them and say, hey, you need to do this, you need to do that. But in the end, when this all really goes down in the coming days and weeks and months, I got to pray and give her to the Lord like I've been doing since the day we brought her home for the hospital. When, when she was born, I, you know, we lost our son at newborn. I just, I always prayed to hear the sound of a crying baby. And Hannah cried a lot. Hannah was colic. She cried nonstop. She changed our world, you know. We called her Hannah Joy. And then Leah and Timmy and Luke were all born. And we just were trying to get her out of the womb when she was born so we could have a, a living child in our house in the, child, in the baby room and not take down a baby room because you didn't bring home a baby. But I realized even when we brought her home from the hospital in 1990 that uh, 
you know, I couldn't keep her safe. I couldn't protect her from fevers and sicknesses and different things. People hurting her. People being malicious to her. The government changing radical laws during her timeline that redefines so many things of right and wrong. Contrary to God's word. I couldn't protect her from that. You know, I once fasted and prayed and walked from the border of Mexico all the way to Maracopa in 08, praying for mercy on our nation and the way the tide was going. And I got to a phone booth by the side of the road with Jeff Thompson and Alex Lopez. They were shadowing me that day. And the Lord said, it's okay, you can go home now. And that's when I ended my prayer walk. But I walked every foot of, every foot of the coastline from the Mexican border. I touched the fence at the Mexican border. And I walked PCH all the way to Ventura, through the mountains, through the grapevine, into the valley, to Maricopa. Because I wanted to protect my children from the evil I saw descending on this land and the decisions of government and evil judges. And I couldn't protect them. You know, the, my daughter voted in 08, Hannah voted in 08, and because she wouldn't vote the way her peer group thought they, that she should, she was ridiculed and cursed her first day of voting as an American citizen in 2008. She was ridiculed and cursed because of her convictions when she refused to go along with the, her peer group violating her polling rights as a U.S. citizen from the space not given to her in her voting. And I couldn't protect her from that. Her first day voting as an American, she was crying. And she told me about this experience. And there's nothing I could do about it. In fact, that day, I prayed from Newport 56th Street. I walked up Harbor Boulevard all the way to Los Angeles County to protect my children from the evil coming on this land. I walked 30 miles that day, and Brian Jameson picked me up as a Tuesday night. I came here and taught a Bible study after that. And I could not protect Hannah on that day because I came back from that walk, and he picked me up, Jameson, and then I came home, and my, my daughter Hannah told me about that. I can't protect it from coronavirus. We don't even know what it is. We don't have a cure. We don't know how it spreads. We don't know how long it's dormant. We don't know anything. The whole world's shut down. I can't protect Hannah as a newborn. I can't protect her on her first day voting uh, in 2008 from her peer group ridiculing her. And I can't protect her right now in Vero Beach, Florida. God has to protect her. And God has to protect your children and protect our children and our grandchildren. And we need to give them to the Lord. We need to put them in the, the, the basket, like the Nile, and say, Lord, it's beyond us. We give you our children and we trust your plans and purposes because you gave them to us at this time, in this place, in this season of human history, unprecedented with anything that's ever happened on this planet prior to this day. And we got to put them in the basket, like Moses, and trust that draw, God will draw them out of the water to a great calling. Because these parents of faith in Hebrews 11, but not named by their name in Hebrews 11, they gave us the lawgiver, they gave us the first high priest, and the first prophetess. That's who we need to be as parents with our kids right now. We need to give the Lord Jesus Christ lawgivers, God's law, high priests who intercede for others, and prophetesses who play tambourines and praise the king on the day of victory and even on the day of defeat. That's what we need to have coming from our homes and our lives right now. We got to put the entire generation 
in the basket and give them to the Lord and trust that God will draw them out of the water for what he has. Now we read on. Verse 11, now it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown that he went out to his brethren and looked at the, their brethren. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. So he looked this way and that way and he saw no one and he killed the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. That's gnarly. He killed someone with his bare hands. That's crazy. And when he went out the second day, behold, two Hebrew men were fighting. And he said to the one who did the wrong, why are you striking your companion? And then he said, who made you a prince and judge over us? Do you intend to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? So Moses feared and said, surely this thing is known. And when Pharaoh heard of this matter, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Now the priests of Midian had seven daughters. And they came and drew water. And they filled the troughs to the water of their father's flock. Then the shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and helped them and watered their flocks. And when they came to Ruel, their father, he said, "How, how is it that you've come so soon today? And they said, an Egyptian delivered us from the hand of the shepherds. And he also drew enough water for us and watered the flock. So he said to his daughters, and where is he? And why is that you have not, that you've left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And then Moses was content to live with the man and he, that, he gave Zipporah his daughter to Moses, and she bore him a son and called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a stranger in a foreign land. Now it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died. Then the children of Israel groaned, and because of the bondage, and they cried out, and their cry came out to God because of the bondage. So God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob, and God looked upon the children of Israel, and God acknowledged them. So we have the first part of Moses' life, through verse 10, this infant life raised by Pharaoh's daughter. And we know that that was 40 years. And he came to a place of great prominence. And the New Testament tells us quite a bit, you know, about Moses, how he prospered there as a 40-year-old successful man in that timeline in that society. But at 40, he is feeling the strain of God's call in his life. And he, 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 he's a defender of defenseless, and he wants to obey the Lord, and he wants to bless the Lord, he wants to do right by the Lord. And he actually, I mean, it's crazy, but like there's some incredible men of God who, who kill people. Like I can't even imagine taking someone's life, but I wasn't David and we don't know what David's life was like. And David took life. I wasn't Paul. I don't know what drove him quite like with that religious zeal, but he took people's lives. And I wasn't Moses. And he, he sought to implement God's justice in his own might on an Egyptian. And he killed him. He killed him with his bare hands, but it was known, and he's got to flee. So put Moses right there with these men that took lives. I don't understand it. It's just God draws a distinction between times of war and times of peace, and sometimes I think we just don't know what we would do in a given situation based upon our instincts and what's going on. Uh, I, I do know I don't really care much about my life. I know I care very much about the lives of other people that I believe are entrusted to me, my family, Worship Generation Congregation, the Calvary Chapel Movement, particularly in Orange County, and the body of Christ as a whole. I care very much about God's people. And I'm a shepherd, and shepherds tend the flock. I remember Pastor Chuck saying one time that someone threatened his family, and he told the guy, if you do anything to my family, I'll track the world down, and I'll find you, and I'll get you. And I was like, wow, Pastor Chuck said that. So I guess you just don't know, right? I guess you just don't know. I don't want to know. I guess you just find out in those circumstances and situations in the critical moment. But may we always be motivated by obedience to the Lord, our selflessness for other people, and protecting the innocent. 
Because know this, in God's word, he puts a high premium on defending the defenseless. And we're coming into a time right now where there's going to be a lot of defenseless people. And we want to love them and serve them, have compassion on them. You know, all the homeless people right now, I am just tripping, thinking, like, what are they going to do? What are the homeless people in Southern California going to do? Tens of thousands of homeless people. What are they doing in San Francisco right now under their pretty much martial law situation? What are they going to do? Who's feeding them? Who cares about them? And that's one good thing about my sister being homeless. It gave me empathy for homeless people. I care about the homeless. And I've seen homeless people the last couple of weeks. Or, well, there's obviously there's homeless people everywhere in Southern California, if you don't know that. And I, I see them. And I think, God, Lord Jesus, have mercy on these people and give us wisdom. Because they're human beings created in his image. And who's going to advocate for them? They're letting prisoners out of the jail systems. Low-level people because they don't want the pandemic to spread in the jails. They're locking up elderly parents like my, my elderly people like my dad where people can't go in and see him. And they're trying to figure out what to do with tens of thousands of homeless people right now in my state where I live in my Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. And I care about them. Whatever goes on in our future, we cannot lose compassion and care for other people, and we cannot lose compassion and care for the defenseless. So if you're taking a strong stand and a very serious stand, may it be for the benefit of others. Your life, it's just a vapor, Solomon. It's just a vapor, James, Old Testament, New Testament. Greater love has no man than this and lay down their life for his friend, Jesus said. And so it's not about holding on. It's about letting go. And who knows what the future holds for us? Who knows? We'll find out soon enough. So Moses had to flee Egypt when he was 40. And there he came to Midian and... uh, Start his new life. And God gave him a wife, and he lived there 40 years. So we have the 40 years of Moses young, the 40 years of middle age, and then we have Moses at 80 on to 120. His life is easy to put in those three increments. We'll get into that more as we go forward in this book, as we go forward in this book. But the last thing we see that in the process of time, verse 23, that the king of Egypt died. So that whole situation for Moses was passed, and the people, God's people, were crying out to the Lord for deliverance, and we know he's going to deliver them. So as we go forward in this book, chapters 3, 4, 5, and just the whole book is the deliverance. Deliver us, O Lord. And so they're crying out for deliverance, and we'll see more of that, how God's going to provide deliverance and how he's going to take them forward in the plans that he has for them. It's, he's not going to let, let them stay in this situation. But there is a process of time, verse 23, and we're in our process of time. And what God's doing, we'll find out day by day. But whatever he's doing, let it be according to you having faith in your heart toward him, looking into Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith, and being obedient to him as best that you can discern according to his obvious word and what the Holy Spirit is speaking to your heart, how to love and serve others. I believe we're going to get through this, but I just really don't know what the Lord's doing, and no one does. So we need to cling to the Lord and trust in the Lord. March 19th, 2020, from the empty sanctuary at Shoreline, Pastor Joey Brown, Worship Generation, praying for you, love you. God, we pray that you open every heart that heard this study and you draw people to yourself in our Jerusalem, our Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth.